Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Our series in 1 Corinthians, we are in 1 Corinthians 16. And uh, for those of you that are visiting with us, we've been doing this series for 2021. Uh, We've covered so many different topics and aspects of life, which we just absolutely love. We love how the Bible speaks into every area of our lives. How many of you know that the gospel is not just for Sunday? You know, Sunday is probably the day you need it the least, right? It's much easier when you're standing in church and you're singing songs and, uh, you know, you're reading from the Bible to feel encouraged and strengthened. How many of you know that the gospel really makes you experience its worth and its value uh, when you're in the midst of your Monday and your Tuesday and your Wednesday and your everyday and those crises that we face and those struggles And uh, Paul's really speaking to the church in Corinth about this. He's saying that this gospel, this word, this, this gospel that we have, this presence of Jesus is what we need every day in every area, in our relationships, in our, our families, in the way that we interact with the world, in our careers, and, uh, and even in our finances. And so last Sunday, we started our last little sub-series that we'll do in the book of 1 Corinthians called When It Comes to Money. When it comes to money. And, um, and we find that in, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 16, Paul actually just says it to the church outright. He gives very little motivation for giving here. He doesn't do any kind of a pep talk. He just says, hey, when it comes to money, concerning the collection for the saints, he's like, just put it aside. Every Sunday, as you prosper, put something aside so that I can pick it up when I'm coming through. And, uh, and that's where we got the title of this sub-series from this morning. I found it, just going through this, just thinking about it, it's so amazing how we have separated the subject of money from our relationship with God. How much we've actually brought a division between those two areas of our lives. It's almost like when kids don't want their food to touch in their plates. Anybody got a child like that? Apparently, I was a child like that. At some point, I was like, my food cannot touch. They get eaten. You know, you get two kinds of people, two kinds of people. There's the kind that everything is separated, and you eat them one by one, and then you get those kids, those strange kids that we need to pray for. They just mix everything together and eat it in one go, right? But we kind of did that And we do that. So even when pastors get up in a service like this and mention money, it's like the hair on the back of your neck starts to stand up. It's like, oh, he's going to go there. Is he really going to do this? He's really going to mix these two things together? He's going to talk about money in church. Why is that? It's a clue. It tells us about how precious our finances are to us and how defensive we are about it. It, it gives us a clue to how much, of our, how much value we place on money. The fact that anybody who says anything that might threaten it, that might, that might challenge that area of our lives, is highly uh, you know, offensive to us. It's a sensitive area. And the thing about sensitive areas, you know, if, if I had to walk up to Will this morning, hey, Will, won't you just come here for a moment? I, this is an unplanned illustration I'm going to do right now. Um, but, Will, if you just come and stand here, if I, if I take Will by the arm like this and I, and I just hold his arm, man, you've been working out a little bit. Oh, it's fat, okay. Um, 
But if I take him by the arm, even if I apply some pressure, it doesn't hurt. Will is not screaming out in pain because his arm is healthy, because there's nothing wrong with his arm. But if, I take, if his arm was broken or if he was recovering from some injury and I grabbed him by the arm, how many of you know he would be screaming out in pain? Not because the pressure that I'm applying is producing the pain, but I am touching on a sensitive area. I'm, I'm putting pressure on an area that has experienced hurt in the past. Come on, let's give it up for Will this morning. Well done, Will. That was awesome. Thanks for letting me use your arm. Um, but you know, that's how, the thing is, is that we experience sensitivity in this area because we have got past hurt, past pain, past fear. We're all anxious about money. We all struggle with money. We, all, we, we don't always have a healthy relationship with money. And so when somebody puts pressure on that place, it's not the pressure that causes the pain. It's the previous hurt. It's the past hurts and anxiety and stress and fear and all these things that we've walked with that produce a sensitivity in us. And that's where God wants to bring healing. That's where God wants us to have a healthy relationship with money, to have a healthy relationship with finances. It's a part of your everyday life. You go to work every single day. You put in hours. You give of your time. You give of your talent in order to produce wealth and to be able to provide for your family. And so it really represents so much about your life. Why would we then separate it from our relationship with God? Why would we bring a divide or a division between what we believe and our values and, and, our, and, our, and our faith in Jesus? Why would we separate that from the area of our finances? For many Christians, we pull a solid meatloaf in this area. What does that mean, Pastor? I will do anything for love. You guys can finish that sentence. But I won't do that, right? I will do anything for God. No, God is my priority. What are your values? No, God is number one in my life. And we say, I will do anything for God, but I won't do that, right? A lot of people claim to have an incredible faith in God and, and devotion to God and passion for God. But when it comes to the area of their finances, that's one area they exclude from their worship. That's one area that they exclude from their relationship with God. And so what effectively happens when we do that is that we set up two gods in our lives. We set up God, the Father, the creator of heaven and earth for eternity. Yes, we worship God so that we can go to heaven one day, and that's for eternity. But then we have another God in our practical lives on an everyday basis, and that is the God of money. And so we ultimately serve one for eternity and one for the present. I'll, I'll worship God 24-7 when I get to heaven one day, but right now I just want to live a comfortable life. And so in a, we might not you know, verbalize it this way, but this is what we do. And that's why Jesus was so adamant about the fact that we cannot serve two gods. It's a fallacy. It's a myth that you can do this and effectively have devotion towards both a God for eternity and a God for the present. Jesus mentioned this as the one thing that can rival your relationship with God today. And it's why it is important that we talk about this in the church. It's why it's important that we mention the power of money to hold our hearts. Because God wants us to be free. He wants us to experience that which is truly life. Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will 
hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You need to choose who your God is because that God will determine how you live in this life and in the life hereafter. If you're going to worship money, then you're going to work for money in this life and you're going to face the consequences of that in the life hereafter. Or you're going to worship God the Father in this life and hereafter with every area of your life. And so, and so before finances are a practical matter, before they're a budget matter, before they're an accounting matter, before they're a matter of wisdom or anything else in this world, before finances are practical, they are 100% spiritual. Have you ever thought of your bank account as a spiritual place, as a house of worship, right? It's important that we see our finances as spiritual, as a heart matter, as a matter of worship, as a matter of faith. It's where you can, it's a great place to test what kind of faith you really have, whether your faith is worth its salt at the end of the day, whether you can take something that you need in this life and lay it down at the altar as a form of worship before God. If you can bring that kind of sacrifice, then you know where your faith really lies. We all struggle in this area, but God wants to take us on a journey. How many of you remember the days? To some of the millennials sitting here this morning, they're like, what is that? Like, what is he doing? Uh, so back when, when I was a teenager, um, you didn't just have a wallet. You actually had a wallet, and this was cool, believe it or not. Um, I don't even have a wallet. This, this wouldn't have been cool back in the day. This would have been like old man stuff, right? Um, because your, your wallet had to have Velcro. But I don't have any of those left anymore. My kids don't have them. I haven't seen them for a while. But back in the day, you would have a Velcro wallet, and it actually came with a clip attached. And you would, you would take the wallet, and then you would clip it on to, which I'm probably not going to successfully do this morning. Uh, you would clip it on to your belt, and, and, and you'd walk around like this. No jokes, this is what you would do, right? Let me see if I can clip this one on. All right, there we go. And so I don't know what the purpose of it was, but I suppose if somebody wanted to steal your wallet, then they would like tug you along and they'd either have to take both of you or leave the wallet, right? And so this, is, this was cool back in the day. And I was just thinking about it uh, as an, an illustration this morning, because it perfectly represents the relationship that many of us have with money. The reason why this perfectly represents it is because so many of us think that we have chained our money to ourselves, right? We're in control, we lead our money, we make the decisions, and we own our money. But the truth is that more than our money being chained to us, we really are chained to our money. We really find it hard to part from our money. If you wanted to put something in the offering, it feels like you've got to rip a part of yourself off in order to give because you're so chained to your money. And so what feels like us uh, and what we pursue in life, what, what seems like financial freedom, which is the, which is the, the tagline that, that so many financial institutions use, you know, achieve financial freedom, really isn't financial freedom because you've put all your hope and all your trust in what you have in your bank account. And we really are chained to it. How many of you, and you don't have to put your hand up, but when giving, you know, whether it's to somebody else, whether it's to the church, whether it's to the, to the poor, whatever it is, 
it, it feels like it, it's hard to do. Come on, let's be, let's be real this morning. It's hard to part from our money. And so this is really what happens. We feel like even though we think our money is chained to us, we really are chained to it. It's like there's this very strong cord that exists that, is, that links our wallet and our heart, our wallet and our happiness that, that, that honestly has the potential, according to the Bible, to both wreck your present and forfeit your future. If we don't get free from this, if we're not able to unclip ourselves and unchain ourselves, it has the potential to both wreck your present and forfeit your future. It's not God's best for your life. And so it's, again, important that we speak about this. Conversely, if we can get God's perspective on money, if we can get God's heart for our finances, we will have the ability to store up treasure in heaven and also live in a way that honors God in this life. According to 1 Timothy 6, which we'll look at in a moment, Paul says to Timothy that those that are able to do this can lay a hold of that which is truly life. If you can lay a hold of these secrets and, 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 and this freedom in regards to your finances, you will begin to experience what life is truly all about. If you can let go of money, you can lay a hold of life. But you can't do both. You can't do both at the same time. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says this. It says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. I want to share a message with you this morning entitled, Treasures in Heaven. This past week, we as a staff went away for a little staff retreat, and uh, we went out to the bushveld, uh, out near the, the border of Botswana, and we just spent some time hanging out, connecting, and, uh, and, and planning for the rest of 2021. And uh, we took Ruth with us. Ruth's at the back there. She's on media today. It's also uh, leading our youth at the moment. And we took Ruth. Ruth is from Texas. So it was her first time ever out in the bush. And uh, when we got there, there was a strapping young Afrikaans lad that was working on the farm. And we said, Ruth, here is your opportunity. The Lord has provided a Boaz for your Ruth. And... Um, and we said to her that, you know, if you don't know how to bake cook sisters, there's one more way to, you know, find your way into his heart. And we tried to convince Ruth to get out of the car when we got there and say, Lakamana. <laughs> and she didn't. And we said, Ruth, there's another way. You've missed that first opportunity. But there's another way. What you can do is you can walk up to him when we go there tomorrow and just say, hi, Boki. And... Um, and you'll probably be married by next week. You'll be living on the farm. You'll be learning how to bake. And to our dismay, Ruth didn't say that either. And so it's probably going to go down as one of the biggest missed opportunities of 2021. But we came back from the bush. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this. If you've had a holiday at the coast or a holiday somewhere in the bushveld and just enjoyed nature, it's so hard to adjust 
when you come back. Like we feel like it takes a day or two for our, you know, just to kind of reacclimatize to the traffic and the noise and the, the concrete and, and just the busyness of Joburg life after having spent a week away in nature. And as I was thinking about that, I thought about the fact that whenever people feel overwhelmed, whenever if, whenever people feel stressed or, or like, they're, like they just need a break, where do we go to to find rest? Like nobody says, I, I feel really overwhelmed, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go into the center of the city and sit in the traffic, right? I'm just going to go find some rest in traffic this morning, right? Nobody drives down to Commissioner Street to get a bit of a break. No, instead, we want to get away from everything that is man-made. We want to get away from the concrete. We want to get a, away from the roads and the busyness and, the, and, the, and the, the noise pollution. We want to get away from man-made, and we want to get closer to God-made. I feel like that's an incredible clue. The Bible tells us that the creation and everything that we find in nature testifies of the power of God. And so it's so uh, you know, telling to me that whenever we want to find rest, we get closer to God's creation. Even Jesus, when he prayed, went to the garden. And we find it easier to connect with God out there. When you're sitting on some rocks overlooking the ocean during a, a beautiful sunset, it feels like it's automatic to just start praying. The moment calls for it because we're experiencing God. On the, on, on the contrary, everything that is man-made seems to drain us, seems to wear us down and wear us out. And, 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 and there's this clue in this desire that we have to escape the man-made and get closer to the God-made, like there's something deep inside of us that longs for eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts. And we know that eternity is home. Before Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 16 about collecting the finances, he spends an entire chapter talking about the reality of eternity and the reality of the resurrection and the reality that, that this world as it is now is not our home. And so in essence, all of us are homesick. We long for it. We, we desire it. We, we want it. It's something that we need in our lives. In fact, Paul writes in another place of Scripture, and he says our very our bodies, these, these earthly temporal tents that we currently wear, groan, longing to be thrown off. Our souls long to throw off mortality and put on our heavenly dwellings, our glorified bodies. We long for eternity because we know that it is home. Our beings cry out for it because we are desperately homesick in this world. We want heaven. We want clear blue skies. We want eternal worship. We want streets of gold. We want the light of the Lamb. You know, the Bible says there's no night in heaven, because the Lamb is light and gives light all day around. The river that flows from the throne and the, the beautiful trees that grow in season and out, that's what we want. When it's spring like it is now here in South Africa, we get this excitement in the air. How many of you woke up this morning and saw the sunshine and, you know, that the trees are starting to go green and something in you says, yes, this is how it's meant to be. This is the life we long for because it's connected to what we know we'll experience in heaven. And so it's what we want. It's what we desire. The end of sin, the end of pain, the end of sorrow, the end of lack. We want to be home. We want to be home. We desire it. But we also know that we can't experience 
the fullness of heaven right now. We can experience it in our souls. We can experience that freedom and that peace and that joy, but we can't experience every part of that final redemption while we're living in this earth. So what we have done instead, what many have done, rather than doing what the Bible tells us, which is to be faithful on earth so that we can have a reward in heaven, we've tried to recreate heaven on earth. We pursue that. We long for it there, but rather than awaiting with faith that final redemption, we instead create a pseudo heaven on earth. And we make life about trying to achieve that kind of rest right now through the life that we create for ourselves. And so what would that look like? It would look like if I could just have a nicer home, if I can just live in a better suburb, if I can just drive a more comfortable car. Look, I'm going to be stuck in traffic, but let me at least do it in luxury. Let me at least do it in comfort, right? If I can go on more holidays, if I can see more of the world, if I can experience adventure, it's like we're trying to recreate heaven on earth. There's, something, there's, there's nothing wrong with having great wealth. Let's be clear this morning. We're not anti-wealth or anti-money or against finances. There's nothing wrong with having a holiday home at the coast or you know, living in the best suburb as long as you haven't traded the eternal for the temporal. The Bible says the things that we currently see are temporal. The things that are unseen, eternity in heaven, they are eternal. They will last forever. And what a lot of people have said is, I don't care where I spend eternity as long as I have a comfortable present. And that's foolishness. It's the ultimate kind of foolishness to trade what is eternal for what is temporal. And that is what a lot of people have done in their finances. In Mark 8 verse 36, Jesus alludes to that when he says this. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? If you can have all the money in the world and forfeit his own soul. Is it really worth it? Jesus says, what, what, what value, what profit is that to you if you can become stinking rich? But at the same time, you've traded your, eternal, your soul eternally. I'll never forget a lunch I had with a really wealthy man who had had amazing success in his business that he started. And uh, we spoke about when he started his business. We were talking about the early days when he just got going. And, and he spoke about how he lived with, with his three kids in a two-bedroom home and, uh, and, and how they, they kind of had to sleep there, uh, on, on one bed, the kids, and, and they had to make another another bed in the same room. And they really put all of their money and all of their effort and all, their, in, all, all of their time into trying to get this business off the ground. And, uh, and how tough those early days were. And obviously at this point now, later on, many years later, he had had great success and he was living in a, in a massive home and uh, you know, in, in a nice estate and, and all these kinds of things. And, and as he was talking about it uh, and talking about those early days with his kids, it's just in that two bedroom home, he kind of looked up at the ceiling and, and, and it's almost like he paused. He was just reflecting on a moment uh, on those days. And and uh, eventually he looked back down to me and he, he just said these words. He says, man, those were the days. Those were the days. So often we miss out on the beauty of this season and this moment and this thing because we have decided that we're only going to be happy when we have a set number of things. 
that we're only going to experience the fullness of life. What is that? When we drive a certain car or when our bank account looks a certain way. And so we miss out on all the in-between moments because we are so discontent in what we currently have. We feel lack and we don't allow ourselves to enjoy where we are. But many, many people will tell you that, that once they had had that success, they look back and they say, man, life was simpler back then. There was just something in it. It was a substance. It was, a, it was something worthy. It was something great. And it wasn't dependent upon how much money they were making at that time. Oftentimes, when we go about making money, this, this fallacy that says that we'll be happy once we earn a certain amount, as we go about it, we actually find that the, the money adds sorrow. It adds difficulty. It complicates the Bible says that God, in Proverbs 10, it tells us that God has a way of adding wealth to us and adding no sorrow to it. It's only when we, when we grow in wealth according to the righteousness of God, according to His blessing, that there's no sorrow added to that wealth. But the reason why it adds sorrow is we often pursue it, and as we pursue it, we trade our eternal values, the things we genuinely believe in, for our temporary goals, temporary riches that we have. And this is why in this world, contentment is a superpower. It's a superpower. If you want to live really, really well, if you want to experience the fullness of life, if you want to have joy in every season, whether you're at the beginning of your journey or near the end of your journey, whether you've made a little bit of money or a lot of money, there is one superpower that will carry you consistently through each of that, and that is the power of contentment, being content in Christ. Because I can tell you right now that if you cannot be content living in a two-bedroom apartment, you will not be content living in a two-story mansion. If you cannot give when you earn 10,000 rand a month, you will not be able to give when you earn 100,000 rand a month. There's something greater that we have to have established within us so that we can walk in this. And, and many people don't realize this when they quote the scripture in Philippians 4.13 that says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many of you have quoted that, written it down, you know, bumper sticker? Uh, bumper stickers don't exist anymore. We should, we should bring them back. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what Paul says in the verse just before? He says, I know how to suffer lack, to not have enough, and I know how to abound with plenty. And in both those things, I have learned to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So here's some good news for you this morning. It doesn't matter what you're currently earning. It doesn't matter what your finances look like right now. It doesn't matter what car you're driving. I mean, Brent is a great example. He's been driving a car that hasn't had two windows for like months. And he's content. He's happy. They were smashed and he had to order some from overseas. And I don't know why, it was too much effort. And so he's just driven with plastic. And so when he gets to one of those Little stations we've got to take a ticket, he has to get out. Unless he cuts a hole in the plastic. We've got to pray for Brent. But contentment is a superpower. 
And the reason why we can't be content so often is because we're chained to our money. We find our value in it. We find our security in it. We find our worth in it. And so we feel, I am nothing if I don't earn X, Y, and Z. We've made that the thing that we look to for significance in this, li in this life. Paul writes to Timothy, a young Timothy in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6, and he says this. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness combined with being content is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. See, right there, Paul already touches on the eternal aspect and the fact that what we have in this life, we're going to leave it all behind. And so why would we find our worth in something that we're going to leave behind? We need to find our worth in all the things that we're going to take with us. We need to store up treasure in heaven. We need to be living with a bigger picture of what we're a part of and the resurrection and the eternity and, and the call of God in our lives. We need to be putting our focus there as opposed to just living for today, just trying to survive, just trying to make it through. We brought nothing into this world. We can take nothing out of it. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, so he says, he talks about desiring to be rich. Nothing wrong with being rich, but the desire is what can cause the temptation as we often compromise our values in regards to that desire. And then he talks about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, he talks about a craving, that some have wandered away from the faith. You cannot serve two gods. If you try, you'll wander away from one and serve the other. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, woman of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, fight to stay true. And the Bible says in Matthew 6.33, as we pursue that righteousness, as we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to us. But it's important that we don't fall into the trap, into the temptation. You know that we often think it's only the rich that idolize money. No, it's, it's more often the poor because you idolize what you don't have. Many of the rich have actually reached the end of, of, of the, you know, the illusion that it's going to make us happy. And so oftentimes they, they, they've come to that end. But, but for people that don't have it, it's something that you always long for and it can become an idol in your life. That craving, that desire, that love for money can actually produce what he says here. Harmful things that, that, that pierce us, that that bring destruction, that bring calamity into our lives. The context of this entire chapter is contentment. Paul's not saying that wealth is bad. In fact, we'll look at a moment where it tells us that God gives us the ability to produce wealth. Contentment, though, keeps us focused on what really matters. That's what contentment does. It keeps you focused on the right thing. Those who long for earthly riches fall into a snare. There's a trap there. And harmful desires that 
plunge people into ruin? How many lives have been ruined because of this one desire? But we as Christians pursue a bigger life. We live a different kind of life. We give our loyalty to an eternal perspective and call. And we can live lives. Here's, here's the, the antidote to the culture of our world. Through contentment, we can be generous. The entire world says, I want, I want, I want. It's all about what I can have. It's all about what I need. It's all about what I feel I need in order to make me happy. But we just come and say, we find our contentment somewhere else. We're not living for this world. This world is nothing for us. We, could, we brought nothing into it. We're going to take nothing out of it. And so what do we have? We have the power to be generous. It is the antidote to the culture of this world. We can live a life of generosity and faithfulness where we are concerned with laying up treasures in heaven as opposed to storing up treasures in this world. And this can safeguard your life. If you want to safeguard your soul against the trappings of riches in this world, there's a very simple antidote. Be generous. Give. And you'll see what God can do in your heart in the midst of it. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 to 19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So God does provide wealth. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then he says, thus. Now that thus is absolutely critical in this verse. Because we want, we've heard so much about storing up treasure in heaven and you think to yourself, that's a little bit vague. How do I do it? Well, this verse just told us straight up. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, for eternity, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How do you do that? How do you store up treasure in heaven? This verse tells us, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. It's as we do things for others that we are then able to store up treasure in heaven. Generosity stores up treasure in heaven and it enables us to lay a hold of what life is really all about. It's not about living for ourselves. So what I want you to notice this morning is that there is a connection between giving in this life and eternity and heaven. There's literally a connection between your giving and heaven. And this is a connection we see right throughout the scriptures. Jesus spoke about it and he kept, as Jesus spoke about money, he kept referring to this eternal connection. We read some of these last week, but in Matthew 6 verse 19, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. In, Math, in Mark 10, verse 21 to 22, Jesus, looking at the rich young ruler and loved him, said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Again, there's an eternal connection between your giving and heaven. So we need to decide what it is that we want for our own lives. 
Do you only want to store up treasure for yourself here and try and experience a pseudo heaven in this life? Or are we going to make value-based decisions based on what we believe? And this raises a much bigger question. Do you actually believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in eternity? Do you believe in the faithfulness of God? Do you believe that the scriptures are true when Paul says that by giving we can store up treasures in heaven and lay hold of that which is truly life? Do you believe that this morning? And that's where giving really becomes a matter of faith. We need to assess our relationship with money in light of eternity. Are we living in eternity? And then we need to make decisions based on what we believe. And that's the only way to live because it's not always gonna feel great. It's not always gonna feel great, but we believe. And therefore we do according to what we believe and not according to what we feel. It would be a good and a wise thing for us to assess this relationship, to think about it, to pray about it, and to allow God to speak to us and to start, and to start taking steps towards that freedom and towards storing up treasure in heaven. I want to end this morning by looking at three quick things with one verse attached to each that you can do to store up, just practical things, to store up treasure in heaven, right? The first one is make room for generosity. You want to live this out? Make room for generosity. It's not going to happen by accident, right? If you spend everything that you have and then some and you're in debt and you've got 100 credit cards and 10 clothing accounts and furniture accounts and, you know, bad debt all over the place, you're not going to have the ability to give. So structuring your budget in a way that you can live within your own means is actually a God-honoring thing to do because it means that when it comes time to be generous, you have something to give out of. And so make room for this. Look at how God instituted this in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, verse 9 to 10. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to its edge. How many of you have stretched your budget right to the edge? And then you've kind of gone over into your neighbor's field a little bit like, I need some more. I just need to add a little bit. Like you're beyond the edges at this point. And the Old Testament says, don't go and reap your field right to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God's like, leave room at the edges for generosity, for the poor, for those that are on a journey, for those that are in need. Don't reap all the way to the edge. And so one practical thing that you can do, if you want to be generous in this life, is set your budget up in such a way that you leave room at the edges for generosity. The ability to give when God moves on your heart. How many of you have felt like giving? only to realize you have nothing to give. No, God wants us to be in a position to be generous. Number two, don't eat the seed. Make room for generosity, don't eat the seed. Second Corinthians 9.10, Paul writes to the church in Corinth again, and he says, God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So God actually provides enough for us to live off of bread for food 
and for generosity. Do you realize that not every bit of money that God has brought into your life, He intends for you to use for yourself? He doesn't want you to eat everything. He's given you the ability to produce a future harvest by taking some of what He has given you, a portion that He will speak to you about, and to plant it in the ground. Ask any farmer, and he will tell you that the most unwise thing that you can do is consume everything that you have. Because a portion of what you have exists to create a harvest for the future. So don't eat your seed. Have seed in the ground. Make sure that you have, that you have trusted God for a future harvest. If you want to harvest, then you need seed. So don't eat your seed. Number three, engage your faith. What we've been saying all along since we started this series is that it's not about, it's not just about practical finances. It's a heart matter. It's a worship matter. And so engage your faith in this area. Second Corinthians 9, 6 to 8, same chapter. Paul says, the point is this. He comes down to it all. And I love how straight Paul talks about it. He says, the point is this. Here it is. Whoever sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. You cannot sow three seeds and expect acres of harvest. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because it's about faith. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, to make you rich in every way, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. If God can get it through you, He can get it to you. He wants you to abound. There's a purpose with our money. There's a purpose for our finances. This is not a formula to be worked. It's a faith to be employed. It's a person to be believed. When Jesus was traveling through the town and there were two blind men sitting there and they called out, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus walked up to them and said, do you believe that I can do this for you? Do you, do you have faith? And they said, yes, Lord, we believe. And Jesus said to them, let it be to you according to your faith. What does your faith look like in the area of finances? If you have little faith, and you sow sparingly, then you will receive a little reward. You'll receive sparingly. But it says, but if you have big faith in this area and you sow bountifully, you will receive bountifully. You will reap bountifully. This is what the scripture says. Small faith, small reward. Big faith, big reward. But God wants us ultimately to abound in good work. And so this scripture tells us that God is looking for cheerful givers through whom he can do his work, through, through whom the kingdom of God can advance, the lost can be reached, the poor can be fed, a difference can be made. He's looking for some people that have big vision and big faith about the life that they lead, knowing that it's connected to heaven. I want to conclude with this story in Acts 10, verse 1 to 8. This just shows us so beautifully that connection. It says, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known 
of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms, your giving, your offering have ascended as a memorial before God in heaven. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, uh, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here is a man whose giving literally created a memorial before God in heaven. That memorial, the translation or the, the, the understanding in the Greek of this memorial is something which brings to remembrance. And through his faithfulness and his heart and his faith in giving, it created a testimony of faithfulness in heaven before God. And so God uses him greatly in the story of the early church where Peter eventually goes with Cornelius to his house and there Peter preaches the gospel and many are saved. And the Bible tells us that as he preached, the Holy Spirit fell. Literally Cornelius' house became a place of revival. But before the revival came, came a man who believed, a man who was generous. Did God do all of these things because he gave a set amount? No. It wasn't about the amount that Cornelius gave. It was about the heart of faith that Cornelius had. And so it just shows you that when you have real faith in Jesus and you have an eternal perspective, every area of your life will become a testimony of that faith, including the area of finances. And God will be able to do much through us. His faith made him generous on earth and rich in heaven. So I want to encourage you this morning, let's take Jesus' advice and not make it all about how much treasure we can store up in this life. But let's make sure that we're storing up treasure in heaven. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand for me this morning? I'd love to pray.